All right, Charles, it's finally happened. We got David Schwartz on the podcast today. Uh, I just wanted to record a little intro here with you leading in, but uh, just to basically summarize, David Schwartz, the composer for Northern Exposure. We've uh, been in touch and uh, finally found a good time uh, for him to chat with us. Yeah, this has been a long time coming for us. We've been communicating with David Schwartz back and forth, trying to arrange the best time with them, and it finally happened. We got a long interview with Mr. Schwartz detailing his rise in the industry, funny stories that are occurring without it, his works on other series such as Arrested Development, The Good Place, and of course, this very show, Northern Exposure. Yeah, and as Charles said, it is a longer interview. We're incredibly thankful. We didn't expect David Schwartz to give us as much time. He was super gracious and really just, you can tell, he loves talking about his art, his work. And um, yeah, it is a longer interview, but I promise that we always round it back to Northern Exposure. We talk about his entire career, and he's got so many great stories working in this business, uh, but it always seems to tie back to Northern Exposure, so definitely stick around through the end of the interview, because we, we're always picked back into Northern Exposure. Uh, I guess that's it, Charles, right? Should we just hop right in? Yeah, let's get right into it. All right. All right, Charles, today we are very fortunate to be joined by... David Schwartz, the creator of the Northern Exposure theme song, composer for Northern Exposure, scoring every episode in the entire series, all that original music. Uh, he's, you know, created tons of music for many TV shows, many movies. You've probably recognized his work in shows like Arrested Development, The Good Place, Deadwood. And uh, today, you know, we we want to congratulate you, David, on winning an Emmy just uh, back in September for that documentary, Lucy and Desi. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, I'm actually blocking it. There it is. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. It's like, right. <laughs> oh, there it is. So it is just chilling with you. I, I should be in color so you can really see how golden it is. Yeah, it was a really nice surprise. And, uh, you know, having been nominated, I think this was, I can't remember what it was, fourth or fifth. And... You know, you never expect to not be nominated. You never expect to win. And especially in a comedy, it's it's an uphill battle. You know, Lucy uh, and Desi was not a comedy, but I'm saying the other time I've been nominated for Arrested Development mm -hmm. and for the Deadwood main title and for um, a show called Wolf Lake, which nobody saw. I I watched the um, the theme music on YouTube earlier today. <laughs> uh, I, I think yeah. I'm going to be doing something with the creator of that again. He's my next oh, nice. director. Really good. Oh, friend. really? And uh, yeah, Wolf Lake came out, I think it was the week or the month of September 11th. And it just, mm. we were ahead of our times making a, a werewolf show about teenagers. And it would have been great, but it, it didn't happen. But at that one, I remember at the Emmys, and I, I know Tom Newman to say hi. We share the same guitarist and some other musicians. And he's a very nice, very humble man. And I was saying, well, you know, Tom's great, but you're going to win. He says, well, I don't know why you say that. I heard your theme. It's really good. You know, and I said, yeah, but you did Six Feet Under and no one's heard Wolf Lake. And he said, I think you got a chance, but I didn't. But that's OK. <laughs> and I was happy that Tom won it. I, you know, he's a hero of mine and a super great guy. So nice. <laughs> well, hey, we loved that documentary. Tons of musical range and variety in that. Uh, we watched Charles and I watched that just last night. Oh, great. It's a really good doc, and and Amy Poehler is the best. That's what we're talking about, right? Yeah, and yeah. And, mm -hmm. and um, you know, I knew Amy a little bit, but I got the job through one of her producers who I've been working with on The Good Place and Veep, 
And he actually did hire me to act in, in Amy's movie, Wine Country. One of the proudest moments of my life. I have one line. Really? Yeah. I noticed that on IMDb, but I haven't seen this film. It's on Netflix, well, it, I think. It, it, it's my, you know, I've probably been in 10 shows because it's if you do a show, they say, hey, can we get a band down there? You want to be in it? That kind of thing. And right. There's a fight scene with John Larroquette somewhere. I, I play an angry white mariachi in Arrested Development. Oh, my God. The director just about <laughs> ran me over because, I mean, Mitch, who loves me and I love him, who created the show, wanted me to be at the front of the mariachi line. And I was carrying a, a guitar on. I was playing the guitar on, which is not easy for me, at least. <laughs> but the shot was like we had to cross the dock in Long Beach. And the director, whose name is great. I can't remember his name now, but uh, he, he he just gunned that segue. He was on a segue with the camera. Wow. That's and each time I figured like, well, I can be in the shot or I can live, you know, so I, I would just jump across the road kind of thing. But uh, so that that's my that's my acting resume right there. Well, let's get to your musical background now. I, sure. I don't know that Northern Exposure was your first time in television, but what was it like starting out? And, and then how did you find it was and, okay? And what a start it was. I had yeah. uh, it's funny. All these people are sort of back in my life right now. But um, I had done a, a very small movie that never got released, and it was a friend of mine, and he had had success in music videos, the early MTV era of music videos. And he was directing music videos for Amy Mann and Till Tuesday and nice. Stevie Ray Vaughan. Some of the early iconic videos that if you know them, you'll, you will. But but he said, hey, I'm doing a movie and you know, I'm looking for someone to score him. Can you think of anybody? He did not ask me. He asked me if I could think of somebody else. <laughs> but I was not a composer, so I was not, you know. Uh, and, and then I told my wife about it and she was friends with them too. I must say that his wife, uh, well, now she was Julie Kaufman, and now she's Julie McAlpine. But but DJ, the guy who hired me, passed away, and it was very sad. He's a very talented guy. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I told it to my wife, and she said, "You could do it. You should do it." And I and I you know meekly went back to my buddy DJ, and I said, "Can I do it? <laughs> Can I do it?" <laughs> and he goes like, "Oh yeah, I got all these." guys with big credits you know because he was with like i think he was with caa at the time and 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 they had sent him all these composers had big credits he says but you know if you write something i'll listen to it so i wrote the theme to his movie skeeter's wings and he loved it and then we found out he had zero budget literally wow. the budget of that film was uh you can't see them up there but they're not working at it but they're old roland samplers and i didn't have anything so i said uh can you get me uh a role in sampler and I can do this movie on that. You know, he said, well, we can split it. So my first movie was splitting the cost of a $1,300 sampler that, you know, was eight bit and all those things. Wow. Um, but it was a wonderful experience and I really learned how to do it on the job with DJ. And then towards, as he, he showed it, he had a small screening for people in the business and stuff like that. And then he just didn't have the wherewithal or the money, I think to, to finish it. Mm -hmm. So he got it. He got it. He had to leave his film. He he got to direct some horror film that, you know, was already in process and had its own people and composer. So um, after I did that film, I realized this is what I want to do. I'd always been a musician. I'd always mm -hmm. been a producer. Um, I was not young. I was just sort of getting by doing various different music gigs. Um, and I had my own studio and the studio was doing pretty well. And that was sort of the end of the period where. Uh, the studio did well because everyone started to have similar home studios. Mm -hmm. You know, my clients right. were all getting, "Hey, man, I love working with you, but I get a studio just like yours." <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what happened then? So uh, the the movie didn't come out, but then I started like um, circulating cassettes because that was the media of the time to 
you know, I found a list of people who do film and TV. And mm-hmm. there's another story. If we have time, I'll tell it later. But, but basically, <laughs> no one got back. And then uh, out of the blue, Cheryl Block, who was co-producer of Northern Exposure, mm-hmm. and still a good friend. Uh, but I didn't know her then. But I, I shouldn't say that. DJ, the director, had asked me to go out to dinner with Cheryl and a couple of other people. And she, he was trying to set me up because she was a, a known producer. And she said, I have this show. We think it's called North to the Future. Um, we've tried everybody in town and we don't like any of the music. And uh, if you've done this now, I've done it long enough to know that that's a mixed message at best. <laughs> okay. Like we've dated everybody who has way more experience than you. And now you want to give it a shot. And that was what she asked. And, and she's the greatest. So she said, you, you know, want to give it a try. And then I said, sure. And I didn't know what I was volunteering for, you know, North to the Future. I, I was not in television. I, I really knew nothing. Mm-hmm. And um, like 15 minutes later, there was a messenger from, again, William Morris, the CAA. I'm not sure which it was. Mm-hmm. So I said, oh, this is serious. I should try hard, you know, because <laughs> I was, you know, I was at the point of looking for plan B at that point, you know, and and, um, mm-hmm. and I had a son and, uh, and my wife was pregnant with what was to turn out to be our daughter. So um, I, I wrote the Northern Exposure theme. It was the first thing that came out of my head. And I have to go back a little further to tell you that I didn't write at all. Oh. I'd been in all these bands. Yeah. I was sort of always the one with musical opinions and would produce or engineer. <laughs> but I was never the songwriter. And, you know, I felt like, well, I can't sing. This is not good. And I was very self-critical of my own writing. So I never finished anything. Uh-huh. So I played pretty much. I, I don't have the copy that I played for Cheryl. It was all. It wasn't all like fake. Demo or something. It, it couldn't be be then, but it was a good demo. And but what I wait, I'm not telling this right wait, because wait. when I heard it, you want to have a question there? I was just gonna say, was the Northern Exposure theme song the first song you wrote, or were you just saying you typically weren't a writer? Right. I mean, sometimes little things I would co-write with a friend, but I, I really didn't consider. I mean, you could yeah. count on on one or two hand to hands at, at you know at an advanced stage already how many things I'd actually written. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, I don't think at that point, maybe there was one song that I wrote with a guy who was a real songwriter and a great singer that got in a movie. Mm. Uh, but that wasn't a big success. Um, then, But yeah, sorry for cutting you off. No, it's purpose. It's, it's good. It's a good place to cut me off because then I realized that what I, when I heard it back to myself, I was going like, I like this, but it's really weird. And it doesn't sound like anything on TV. So I wrote a second <laughs> thing that I don't have. I wish I had a copy of that. I say this all the time because I think it sounded like a quiz show, a game show on TV. Wow. And I think it was absolutely wrong. And when Cheryl came in the next day, she listened to it and said, oh, this is not very good. (laughs) Do you have anything else? And then I said, yeah, this this is actually the second thing I wrote. You want to hear the first thing? And uh, and surprisingly, she said yes. And she said, oh, I like this a lot. You know, let me play this for Josh and John, who created the show. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, you know, it's a long time ago, so I'm trying to remember the details. But I think it was a few days later, she called me up and they go like, uh, oh, and I also knew at this point that they were had a very serious interest in a song from David Byrne. So that was my okay. competition at that point. They'd passed on all these other composers, I believe. And uh, I so, think it was called This Little Town from David Byrne. It's a killer song. And okay, when I heard yeah. that, I figured, okay, you just lost. <laughs> At the time of recording, we weren't exactly sure what the title of that David Byrne song was. So I doubled back with David Schwartz over email, and he believes it was the song Dirty Old Town by David Byrne. Not positive, but that seems to make sense, I think, in this case. But she called me up and said, hey, we really like your theme, and we're actually going to use it. So the theme, did 
were you given like uh, any concept of what the show would be or get any direction on what type of music or this is just something you were feeling? I think I had a conversation with Josh mm-hmm. and our kids happened to be, our, our first sons happened to be in the same preschool. And Josh, and this is very him, and I, I can't say to know him very well because he's hard to know, but I love him. And he said, this is through Cheryl, she says, oh, Josh really is nervous. He doesn't want you to do it because if he doesn't like it, you know, he's going to have to see you kind of thing. I think that was the gist of it. Like instead of like, oh, oh wow. cool, someone I know who I can work with, it was more like, well, what if it doesn't work? You know? yeah. <laughs> so I had that in my head. And I talked to him up and I can't remember if this was before or after I wrote the theme. I think it was before because he gave me some guidance. And and I had like researched some Alaskan music and there wasn't much to be found. And the internet really wasn't in place at that point. And I went to a record store and I heard a lot of really interesting vocal chanting music. Mm -hmm. But I didn't think it could be the theme or any part of the show. It was very indigenous and beautiful, but I didn't think, you know, it it was going to be the theme song of a show. And I think Josh's greatest hint was, that, well, you know, if you don't have something that feels like Alaska, go the other way. Go to music that's influenced by Southern things. Mm-hmm. So, and it was a time where Cajun music was really big and, mm-hmm. and Latin music was really big and Cuban music was really big. And uh, Buena Vista Social Club, I think, was around that time. Mm-hmm. And so all those influences are somewhere in there. Yeah. And as a bass player, I had the advantage of having played every kind of music from orchestras to jazz to country I always felt that that was not a negative, but I felt like I wasn't known. When I moved to Los Angeles from New York, there was like one guy who played either, each of those styles and they were great, you know? Okay. And, and they had it now, the guy who could play with his thumbs and, the, and you know, Nathan East was doing the ballads and Lee Sklar was playing with all the singer songwriters and they're all incredibly great bass players. Uh, so I, I had that guidance from Josh and then the theme came out of that. And then when Cheryl called me, she said, okay, we'll see you tomorrow. And I didn't even understand that, like, it wasn't just the theme. You know, there's a composing job attached to that. And I really didn't know what that meant. So, you know, at first I was super excited with none of the other side. And then when she told me I'm coming in the next day to start being the composer, you know, the the fraud complex kicks in big time. And you go, (laughs) what am I going to do? I've never written one thing, you know. And I didn't say that to her, Uh of course. And um, Right, right. So I went in to their offices, which were then uh, Montana building in Santa Monica, very close to me, all all convenient now that I think about it. And I I met with Josh. I think by that point, John was mostly out of the picture. Uh, John Falsey, the creator of the show. Josh was definitely, you know, all all decisions went through Josh if he was around. Mm -hmm. And then if Cheryl or some of the other producers were around, it's an interesting way that way because you had to please different people who had very different opinions about music and very different favorites. So, uh, so I, I came in there and it seemed like they were using my theme. And then they said they didn't want to use a lot in the show and they wanted like it always interesting and different music, which was what the show, you know, they're very brilliant that way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think we spotted 10 places for those people who don't know spotting, you get together with the directors and the producers or anyone who's in charge of the show and you watch the show. And then we go like, well, we could use some music here or someone will say something like, oh, this smells like a cue. <laughs> and for, if you don't know, a cue is a piece of music in a, in a film or TV show. And, you know, we picked 10 spots and, you know, I went home feeling a tremendous amount of pressure on me. And, uh, you know, but I also had to support my two little kids now. And <laughs> so I, I wrote the whole show and Cheryl this time brought all the producers into my very funky garage studio 
And they were just like Charlie, they were all very frank, more frank than the people I'm used to now. They were like, no, this doesn't work. This is no good. Oh, are, you, wow. are you kidding? Did you, did you think you were any more con here? <laughs> you know, <it's> just, <laughs> but I, I have to make it very clear. They were not mean. They just, right, right. They're just they had a goal. They're very honest. Like all arguments that I remember, you know, about creative things were about creative things. Whereas after that, I went into a show that was politically, uh, particularly political. And, and I didn't get it. I was, you know, in deep water there because I didn't care about the politics like, like the creators, Northern Exposure. I just wanted to make the best show and the best music. Mm-hmm. So we, they listened to nine of the 10 pieces that I composed for the pilot episode. And I was just feeling like, well, I said, you know what, this is not going well. I didn't really get it right. You know, if you give me a day or two, I'll rewrite it and it'll be better. Who knows? And they said, well, let's listen to the last piece. And they loved the last piece. It's the ending piece. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it, it, it's um, harmonica and a sort of slide guitar and a pad. And and uh, and they love that. So we what's were all the, happy that we, we had two pieces. Do you remember what the what's happening on screen at, for that last song? I remember somebody under a tree. How's that for being exact? <laughs> <laughs> and I think well, it, I think it was Holling, Maurice and Holling. I think I know yeah. what you're talking about. They're yeah, talking yeah. about like I, I what does love feel like? It's like you're yeah, it's one of those zero philosophical moments of the show, and it just fit really well. And yeah, and I must say, I don't think I've ever written anything like either the theme or that last piece. And I've tried. Mm, mm. And if I go back and listen to the theme, I go, oh, that's really cool. And I don't often say that about my own music, but I go like, like, how did I do that? Yeah, and it's very different music, and it, it and. And I, I think in the first season, it was always like, what are we going to do here? And and Josh would say, well, this is Ed. Like, if you crack his his head open, parrots come out. So <laughs> I, I remember that one. But he had a million of those, you know. And, uh, you know, it's not like uh, play G flat major seven here, you know, and, which I way prefer the parrot kind of stories, you know. And I've yeah, told that yeah. to the other people I've worked with. And there was one producer I worked with who had done big things. And he was here, sitting right here. And I played him a whole piece. He said, yeah, I really like that. But when you went to the A minor seven, you lost me, man. <laughs> like an hour later, he was asking my opinion on something. I said, I, I still can't believe you said A minor seven. I heard him play guitar and he was a good musician himself. And it's fine. to I, I can stand, you know, musical terms and I can stand. I prefer when they talk like, you know, it's storytelling. So if, what do you want that's not in the scene or what do you want to change in the scene? For me, that's that's the most effective direction. And everybody has a different style. And I can't say that any of the shows I've worked with, you know, we just have to learn it to speak each other's languages. And it's something I pride myself on that I can do, you know. And um, there are composers who are beyond talented or, you know, musicians. And I don't think they get that that's, that's the point of the job. You're telling the story, you know, and, mm-hmm. and it's their story. And, you know, it's your story too, but you have to make it their story. There was a great segment on Colbert last night with John Williams and Steven Spielberg. And mm. you know, Steven says, hey, what do you do? You know, and he says, I don't mean that to be facetious, but I, what is the purpose of what you do? And it was a great answer. You should look it up. Okay. I have a very simple question. What's your job? And I, I don't mean that facetiously. What's your job? No, no, it's a wonderful question. It's very, very simple. I, I don't know if I can give you a simple answer. But my job in film, I think the first answer that I can give you is that is to is to inform and uh, improve in, in the process of storytelling through music, if I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, describe the characters, describe the atmosphere and the ambiance of what the, what the story requires. And so uh, my job is to be a collaborator with the director 
in achieving all these things, the atmospherics, the emotional content, and so on. But it was just last night, and Spielberg, like Spielberg, is on the whole show, and for one segment, uh, John Williams is there. Nice, that's incredible. That's and, yeah. and they said, and this is unheard of in <laughs> me or any other fellow composer. Like, like the, Spielberg and John Williams said, there was never a piece that John showed to to, to Spielberg, and 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 Spielberg said, no, that's not right. Or let's use this someplace else. I don't, I don't think we got this one. Like, so everything he wrote was perfect. Was accepted. Not perfect, wow. but you know, I'm sure there were notes, but it okay. was like, uh, you know, I'm not feeling this one. Let's go another way. You know, which wow. anyone who's composed has had whole scores thrown out, you know, or certainly cues or, yeah. you know, and, and I, I get that. I wanted to talk to you about that, actually, because you said that you composed 10 songs and they got to the last one. And that was the one that, like, they really enjoyed. They said, like, right. hey, let's get more of that right there. I, that's got to be brutal to get. I mean, you were one out of 10 right there. Right. Did you <laughs> did you go back on that one song that actually worked and just worked around that one song and just redeveloped everything from there? I, I was never that person. I don't think I really got into expanding themes for a long time. I sort of came more from the song world. Mm -hmm. And even though they're cues, not songs. And the, the nature of the show, we just always were talking about different kinds of music. So, you know, I think in the sixth episode, um, I had a full orchestra. Wow. And they had no idea whether they could do that. They took amazingly brave chances on people. A lot of directors got their starts on Northern Exposure. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, people who, were, who did something else, they were ADs or they were editors or whatever, but they said, oh, you're going to direct the episode, whatever. Right. And uh, so they, they wanted, and I think it's smart too, because they wanted people who hadn't done it, so it didn't sound or seem like everything else that's on the air. Yeah. Somehow they made it work, but I think it's risky because there could be total failure and that's never works in television. <laughs> and it just goes too fast. So yeah, I, I looked at that piece, but I couldn't find, made it to work into other things. And I was really figuring it out cue by cue and scene by scene. And they had a lot of opinions about it. There's a lot of times they told me this doesn't work or whatever. And I was really learning by the seat of my pants, not like John Williams, who was fully formed John Williams, you know, only got better. So um, I, I'm, I'm super grateful for the experience of Northern Exposure because, I mean, not only that, but, you know, there were extraordinary people who you were always learning from being around and they knew more about music than most people and different musics. And the show itself, as the first season was ending, I don't remember the time, we became super popular critically mm -hmm. and with an audience. And the show started to do real well. And I think that before that, we were ignored by the powers that be, the network and whatever. And they just said, oh, you know, this show's never going to last. So we don't have to give notes on it. And I think that really led us <laughs> to develop into something that's yeah. unique and special to this day. You know, I haven't watched an episode in a while, but it seems like it holds up always. And it will find new and new audiences, despite the difficulty of finding it anywhere to, to view. You know. Yeah, <laughs> right. It seems that it's uh, it's very timeless. And I, I think that one of the things that makes it like one of the things that people always comment about because we always bring new people to come see the show. They've never seen an episode before. We're dropping them in the middle of the ocean and they watch it and then they watch the theme song. They see the moose and they always say, oh, my Lord, that theme song. It is amazing. Like everything that's going in there, like without fail, I got I, that's got to be the most popular thing that we have heard uh -huh. on this podcast is about your theme song. And I think that's the thing that ropes them all in. And they're like, all right, I think I can watch like 40 more minutes of this. Like, let's, <laughs> let's give this a break. It's magical. And I, I wrote it, you know, I was hired before Morty the Moose was, as far as I yeah. know. <laughs> so at this point, I've written dozens and dozens of main titles. And sometimes you get the video. Deadwood's an 
example of that. And that was great because I was really inspired seeing how wonderful that video was. And it was also intimidating. Like, what can I write that's as good as this visual? And now I'm starting a new show, which I can't talk about. So there, I told you that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, totally out of my head. And I used to hate that, although that's how I did the Northern Exposure theme. Mm-hmm. In other words, I preferred to have a script or, or, or a scene or something like that. I still like that because it's... You, yeah you have a better feeling of of what's right. Can I ask if there's any difference between scoring in the 90s compared to what it is in present time? Like, is there a fundamental difference between it? Or is it still exactly the same? Like, you just go off of, like, a synopsis. You get off of a feel, and you're saying, I think that this encomposes, this music will encompose this television show. I'm going to go from there. Or is there a, a hierarchy shift now on how to compose for television shows and films? It's It's... Everything's changed and it's still the same. Mm-hmm. You know, it's still storytelling. I, I mean, I'll talk, you know, I don't know how, what other one hour dramas was. And we were never, we were always in between categories. So we were a yeah. dramedy before the word existed. Uh, everyone would call us quirky, but we were also a very serious show with all this philosophy. And, you know, there was an indigenous cast, there was cast of all age. Um, so it was a very unique show in that way. But at the beginning, I think in the first season, I would write like eight minutes per episode. If I do an hour show now, it's closer to the length of an hour show, which is 41 mm. minutes, 42. And and that's different, you know, and uh, I got paid better in the 90s than I do now. Uh, I won't go into the details, but it's true. Uh, like, you know, um, not even adjusted for inflation. It's just harder and harder. And there's so many people who want to do it now. Yeah, I think there's a lot more pressure now. Um, you know, we always think, well, this new thing is going to save us a lot of time because this you know, and I'm having conversations with friends of mine who are developing things for AI. It's fascinating. But the idea that any technology is going to give us free time just always <laughs> seems to work out the other way. Like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, this studio was the third year of Northern Exposure. We moved to this house. But there used to be a 24-track tape machine there or there. There are two soffits where bases are now and, and a four-track tape machine and a big giant English console on the front. And obviously, like everyone else, after a while, I I record it to computers, I write it to computers. It's Mm -hmm. totally different technology at that point. But I came in at the very tail end, you know, where um, I I think I said this once to Alf Clausen, who did The Simpsons forever, that, you know, we we started at the same time on those two shows. His continued forever. Unfortunately, he's not with it, but, you know, the show still goes on now. And Alf said, yeah, since... 93 or 91, whenever they started, I think um, that, you know, he would come in and he'd have a small orchestra on on the Sony or the Warner Brothers lot and 25 people. I never had that regular orchestral show. And I think my career was shaped by doing a certain kind of show. Mm -hmm. So um, I think Northern Exposure is funny and real and has drama and comedy. And uh, it's, it's really different and the music is really different and it's not like that same not you know the simpsons is genius i'm not saying it's not <laughs> but uh you know he had that orchestra in the same band all the time and there was sort of an order to that you know like i got these 25 guys i'm going to come in there and yeah. i was just calling friends and musicians one by one i didn't have much of a budget at all when i started and uh, but that helped in a way too and I met some of the musicians who I still use now, who are just legendary. Yeah. And I sort of learned the difference between someone who plays in a band, someone who plays a certain style of music and is a blues master, and and the great session players who can convincingly doing all of that. Mm-hmm. And there's a strong argument for using those guys who are genre players because they're the real deal of it. But sometimes 
in one day, you need someone to play 20 different styles. And that's where, you know, the great George Deering, my favorite studio musician and, and guitarist, uh, come into play. Nice. I think that you have a, a very wide musical gamut right there. But one thing that just really caught my ear right now is that you were saying that people sought you out for a specific uh, sound that they wanted from your show. And me and Lee were looking through your filmography. We were seeing what you had scored and everything. And one thing that I thought was really interesting is that you've composed for The Thick of It, Arrested Development, Veep, shows that seem to fall apart at the seams, but still remain hanging by a thread from virtue of a coincidence. And alternatively, you've composed for The Good Place, mm-hmm. Rutherford Falls, Lady Dynamite, shows that are similarly hanging on by a thread, <laughs> but are ultimately optimistic. And I thought that that was like a really interesting theme that I was getting through. Oh, see, I thought you were going a different place, but I like that. I like <laughs> no, that. I was saying, I was like, well, these things are about to collapse at any moment, like a, a shift of the wind like a toss of the dice and like the, the entire thing just falls down right there. And I was like, is that just like a common thing that people seek out Mr. Shorts for, for their music right there? Would yeah. you, would you say that's a fair characterization? I wish I knew what people sought out Mr. Schwartz for. Um, <laughs> Cause I don't, um, I, I think in a room, I, I, they're very comfortable with me. Mm-hmm. I have a sense of humor uh, and, and I come from a visual background. Everyone in my family was a visual artist. And I think I can understand that better than I'm, a better orchestrator or, you know, or I understand avant-garde classical writing better than other people, but I get to do everything. And uh, I think after I did Arrested Development for many seasons and it's, you know, I could say they're all my favorites, but, you know, Arrested is just way up there on the list, as is The Good Place. But those two shows are opposite. Because after I did Arrested and I did Lady Dynamite, which also uh, Mitch Hurwitz produced, Mm -hmm. uh, those were like the kitchen sink. So you couldn't say, I'm going to have a quartet on this episode. because that's all we're going to use. You know, if you had the quartet, there was your budget and you didn't have, you know, for percussionists and guitarists. So I often hire my musicians very late, but what I'm trying to get to is I love the good place because I was able to have a set musical palette. Mm. It was almost always the same. I would add a player here or there and it wasn't boring at all. I I mean, you know, uh, Mike Sher is a wonderful genius and I was always surprised by what happened every episode and but the music got to develop from a set place and then just grow from there was my opinion about it. And, you know, sometimes I'd have to do something like a, a dance club and, and a, write an EDM piece. And that's always fun too, but it wasn't, you know, usually every show we had a certain sound and that's different, but it's different from what you're saying about that. What's happening in the show. <laughs> yeah, and similarly, things are not, you might say in a good place, things are not falling apart so much. It, it is a sort of benevolent place. And, um, it's always the same group of people who are in the show. It's a limited cast. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were guest stars and, and stuff. So I think in that way, it was similar to the limited palette I had musically. But it was a wonderful palette. And I came up with it, you know, the week that they met me. And uh, mm-hmm. it was, I've told this before, but, you know, I, I was sitting here wondering what my next job is. And my agent calls me up and she says, uh, there's this new show called The Good Place and I want to meet you. And that doesn't usually happen like that. It happens in a million different ways, but, and she said, you should go because it's Mike Schur and he's, you know, a creative genius and he did The Office and he did Parks and Rec. And uh, so that's all I knew. And I just drove over, I think that afternoon. And there's like, this is always the case. There's six or seven producers in a room and you walk in and, you know, you represent the other side, one person, you know? So to me, a goal (laughs) is remembering half of their names or like not blowing (laughs) it in the room, you know, because I'm not good at that. Yeah. And everybody's extremely witty and they just wanted to hear stories about David Milch, like 
80 percent of of uh of my interview with them i still didn't know what i was up for whether it was a comedy or drama they told me nothing and they just wanted to hear amusing stories about david milch which i had a couple and mm-hmm. uh and you know milch created deadwood and is a genius too and uh you know, I thought it was going well, but you can't really tell. And as Mike's walking out the door, she says, you should know, I really don't like music in my television shows. And, uh, you know, if we ever like anything of yours, we'll say like, oh, that's okay, or that's fine, and we'll move on. And so I had my goal to change that statement from him. And one of the other producers on the stage at the first episode of The Good Place said, like, I think Mike's going to have to <laughs> say that he really likes the music in this show, and he used a lot of it. And and it really became more and more music. And... um it wasn't a conflict, but I, the funny thing about when Mike and I would have a disagreement and you know, he's always going to win that, whatever it is. But, you know, we get to you know episode four and they'd be using some peace of mind as a temp in there. And to, to explain for the lay audience that, that, you know, most editors cut to music for everything where there's going to be music. And that often becomes the place where the music is. So it's it's sort of like that's pre-decided. Well, we move that around. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm trying to remember why I was saying this now. Uh, but oh, so the temp music would be in there, and you know, after a while, if you're a show's composer, all the temp music becomes you. Mm-hmm. you now, sometimes there'll be a piece of Michael Dana's in there for some film that they love, and I, I find that a better temp music because, like, I don't want to try to better what I already did that they love. Yeah. But that's often mm-hmm. the argument. I go like, "You want that?" He said, they said, "Yeah." I said, "But I don't think it works there. I think I could do something better for that spot. I love this piece, but can I do something better?" And, and Mike would always say, well, you can try, but I'm going to take it out. I won maybe 50 to 60% of those particular kind of battles, battles of rock. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember one terrible loss I took, though. I, I can't tell you about it, but it was like, <laughs> Ooh, tantalizing. everyone was saying, your piece is way better. It became like this big thing. And, and Mike said to me on the stage, and we're all sitting there, and he's about to make the judgment. I want you to know this is the most angita, and what's the Italian word for anxiety? Agita. And anxiety I've ever had. He said, it was keeping me up for the last few nights. I told my wife, I don't know how to make this decision. And I just said, look, I have a feeling you're heading the other way. But, you know, this is your decision. It's your show. So you got to go with your gut here and, and I'll get over it. <laughs> if I don't have this piece in there. And, and he did go the other way on that one. But a lot of them, you know, he loved the new one and used it, you know, so. Yeah. But that, it's an interesting thing. People get used to something and they're hearing something. Yeah. In my opinion, sometimes that's night. Not right, and I'm so sure I should do the same thing, and I do it to players because mm-hmm. they'll change something in the studio, and I'll go, yeah, can we go back closer to what I wrote, you know? And it's 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 what you get used to, right? Yeah, because you're too afraid that like every revision just gets further and further away from what the original was. That at some point you just lose the thread, and you're afraid of that. But it should be better. The point of a revision is to make it better. Often you're right, but it's not, you know, or. It's being so yanked around by they're changing the editing. Sometimes they'll change the cut so many times and they go, oh, it's no big deal. Just move this here and this there and this there. And I said, I tried that. I don't like it. Can I write something new? Mm -hmm. I think that's what I would have done if they had presented what I was now dealing with the cut that I'm dealing with. And I'm still inspired by Fascinated just today. You know, if you put music against picture, it's amazing. You know, it can be amazingly (laughs) wrong. You can play 10 pieces of music Five of them could be a great answer. Five of them could suck against it. Not that they're not good music, but you 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 do that, and then you go like, "This is great." Now, how do you pick which of the five that work? Right. 
Right. I mean, it's a 50-50 split. It's audio-visual medium. Right. The, the audio is right there. It's 50%. Right. And uh, yeah, it just definitely is a character of itself right there in the show. Uh, Lee, I think there was something that you also wanted to talk about mm-hmm. on, I, I believe, that there's one track that we we love. We <laughs> ask, every single time we hear it in Northern Exposure. I'm fascinated. Tell me about we, it. We comment it. We, we say like, this is a just. Put it, play it, Lee. Play it to the full, like the full thing, and then uh, we play it, and we always comment about it. And that is Maggie's theme. Well, we were we were wondering. So I think it's mostly in like the earlier seasons, but it does show up sometimes for Maggie. It does, yeah. is, is it? Uh, do you have a title for that piece of music? Do you know? Do you know the song or? It was called Maggie's theme. It's called Maggie's theme. Hey, we got, we got it. it. It might sometimes a piece will get another title for some reason and a, uh-huh. a different version of it. But um, I kind of remember Cheryl, who had hired me, not Josh, because there were a lot of producers with a lot of musical opinions. Mm-hmm. Said uh, we need a theme for Maggie. Can you write something that seems right for Maggie? And um, it's a very simple piano piece. I was working with the great Luis Conte, who's one of the great Cuban percussionists. Mm-hmm. And I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel drums. It was really minimalism. Mm -hmm. And and I think the classic version is triangle and piano. Mm -hmm. And and now I'm talking out of school, but I remember Luis went out with, years later, this just came into mind that he went out with, I I may be telling it wrong, but I'm going to tell it anyway. This is funny. (laughs) Uh, He he toured with Pat Metheny for a couple of seasons or years, something like that. And he said, like, Pat told him, um, hey, man, don't ever play triangle with piano. That doesn't work. Which, you know, here you have these great jazz artists, and sometimes you'll find people who you think of as the great experimenters yeah. and have rigid definitions of stuff. So I thought that was funny. That's hilarious. Um, and I'm sure it worked. But I, I've heard people say electric bass and piano doesn't work. Interesting. And and I can show you 10 examples where it does. <laughs> right. So it just depends on the musicians. So yeah, that, that piece, and I, and I always wanted to build on it more, but it always just sounded like magazine no matter what I did. You know, there were some different tempos. Yeah. Where I may be, the piano was still simple, whatever it was, but I, I tried to do different things. I think there's like some with guitar, like there's some there's some versions that get more embellished, but it is, as you're saying, it kind of sticks to that simple melody. Right. Uh, and and it was always a challenge to make a new version of Maggie's theme. Um, one thing I really liked was uh, when I had a real piano, which was only after like, maybe been after Northern, and I went back just to do that because I have a... Oh. It was in MIDI and I had a good piano sample, but mm-hmm. now here in the other room, I have a, a Yamaha Disclavier, which I can take that MIDI and make it in, you know, the piano will play it. It'll just play it programmed right. or whatever. That's pretty awesome. I'm a piano player, so I use it all the time, but I'll, I'll do it in MIDI. <laughs> and then sometimes even as late as we're mixing, I'll say to whoever's mixing with me, I'll say, oh, just run it through the disc lab and we'll have a real piano. Yeah. And usually it's way better, but sometimes there's something about the way you wrote it to a sample. Mm. More effective. I, I did have it during the show because I got it when I moved to this studio, which is I think in the third year of Northern. Nice. So actually, talking about instruments and you know MIDI and just different synthesized sounds. Going back to the theme for Northern Exposure, you had mentioned like there was a demo version you made, but the actual theme that we're hearing. What are some of the instruments? Like, there's a lot going on there. I'm gonna try to remember. Yeah. Uh, I think. There was accordion, which wasn't real on the TV show, but was real on the on the soundtrack album. 
Interesting. Yeah, like the hmm. CD uh, music from Northern and, Exposure. And that, and that was, I believe, Mike Thompson, who was a good friend. I haven't seen him in a long time, but he, he's been going out with the Eagles for 20 or so years. And he plays guitar and organ with the Eagles, mainly organ. Uh, and so he, he was one of my friends and he came in and we did it. Neither of us had an accordion then. And uh, now we both do. um uh the drums i programmed again on the record you know it was a different budget the show had some success and i got jim keltner the great jim keltner and we did it and you know also i couldn't have kept programming for the three minute version that's on the on the record you know on the soundtrack uh i'll go back a sec because it's what josh says uh to me uh you know there's talk this get get nominated you know and we were making a soundtrack album and he was talking like it wasn't going to be me it was going to be all the cool records around there Right. And, and I unusually spoke up for myself. I said, well, you know, a lot of the music's me. We should have me on there. So we can have the theme and then you can do a medley. Yeah. So uh, I got one medley, which came out good. And uh, writing the theme was one of the most challenging things. The, the, the three minute version. I, I think I originally wrote the Northern Exposure theme for the television show at 118 or something like that. Okay. And then every season it would get cut down more. So I don't, I don't know what it finally aired out in its final season. And that happens in TV shows a lot. They want more room for the writing and they people mm-hmm. they feel that people are going to turn away if the theme's too long uh so uh when josh said you have to do a three he came to me in his typical way he says oh can i get the three minute version i said josh i you know i was panicking trying to get one minute to you there's <laughs> 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 no three minute version like and then nobody does that although i did an arrested development when when we were writing a lot of songs mm-hmm. and i wrote a lot of Gabriel Mann, and it would be four in the morning. And I say, you know, we have to finish this song now in case there's a soundtrack. So we're not going to want to come back and try to get in the same mood. And, and That's interesting. Yeah. We were too tired to do that. And sometimes we just bang it out, you know, and get it. And then songs that we did have to come back, I can think of one. At, we're, we're now in Arrested Development, we're particularly mm-hmm. hard. It's the moment of creation. You're there, you know. Yeah. And I would always start like the, after a full day of composing for the show. I would start writing the songs with Gabe later with my daughter. And, uh, you know, so it was very late and we were very tired. And I said, you know, it's on you. You got to keep me awake, <laughs> whoever I was co-writing the songs with. Yeah. So we go back to now. And now Josh says about three minutes. And that was really hard because I felt I had wrote, written. And again, I don't think this about many pieces of music I've written. It was like perfect. I didn't want to change it at all. You know, sometimes you hear mm-hmm. stuff on the air and you go like, oh, my God, I could have made this so much better, you know, a note or an instrument choice. But I felt like, you know, it was the first thing I ever really wrote. I felt it was the definitive version. Yeah. So, um, so, so writing it, and I really leaned heavily on soloists. I had Abe Most play mm-hmm. a solo, and Luis Conte played a percussion solo, which was just awesome. Nice. And I flew in. This that never happens anymore. Um, <laughs> a- Andy Norell, uh, the great steel pan player, who plays. Um, wow. Yeah, I was gonna. Wow. I was gonna mention. I I think I was listening to that longer version and it does cut to different solos like there's the the steel drum or whatever yeah yeah and, and the steel drum is really incredible and andy is the greatest jazz steel drum player i know and, and or the pans whichever you call it mm-hmm. and but he wasn't that guy who played you know what he would probably refer to as jamaican tourist music but it's really <laughs> is the original music of the steel so he knew it enough to play it great but you know mm-hmm. his natural tendencies would have to, to, to play a more jazz based solo mm-hmm. Oh, and the harmonica solo. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, God. Why am I forgetting his name now? Um, you know the name of the harmonica player? I don't. I was going to say, like, no. we should figure this out. It's he's like a the... friend. And he lives, he's been living in Holland for 30 years. Uh, uh, Tolak Olstad. Tolak nice. Olstad. 
Uh, okay, so I keep on. Do you mind me like having? I'm like a modern movie that doesn't have a timeline. You know, I'm unstuck in time. Oh no, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> so, uh, but actually, one thing that happened on the original demo, and I will say that Josh um, asked me to try a horn section for a melody and a couple of other ideas, and then he just sort of said, "No, I think your original version was better." And that's mm -hmm. something that happens all the time in TV. You know, you do 18 versions of something and go back right. to version one. I've just I don't get frustrated at that anymore it's just part of the process but we did try all these things and so when they heard the demo it was uh, a midi instrument harmonica uh a okay. chromatic yeah. harmonica. and they liked it and i thought it was the most offensive sound so i said yeah i'm gonna get <laughs> the real guy and it's gonna be so much better and they liked everything else that i replaced but um i got a guy in town who was known to play chromatic harmonica and he was very good he was just more of a classical guy and i wasn't even looked to me, there's, there's many more, but there's two that stand out on the chromatic harmonica. One's Toots Thielsman, the great uh, French-Belgian. Uh, Toots was an unbelievable guitarist, probably the best whistler ever. He he, he could whistle mm. whole songs. <laughs> um, uh, I think his song, Bluesette, showcases all those things. And an unbelievable chromatic harmonica player. But that's not the sound. And I realized after doing it for a little bit and trying this other harmonica player, I wanted Stevie Wonder. Uh, <laughs> Not so easy. No. <laughs> Some people were really suggesting. I know Stevie. You know, you can call him. He might do it like at four a.m. or something like that. You know, because uh, Stevie working all night. And yeah. you know, a better story to tell. But the story was pretty great because this other. I remember I, I I played a little bass on my friend Larry John McNally's record, and I remember that he had a great chromatic or harmonic player. Mm -hmm. And you know, then I didn't even know. I was just looking for a lead instrument. I knew I wanted it to be a harmonica. And I knew it wanted to be the chromatic, not the blues, because I can play blues harmonica, but that's not what I wanted. Uh, yeah. uh, and so he said, oh, yeah, that's Tolak. He's really an R&B singer and a keyboard <laughs> player, but he plays, he gets a great sound. So he comes in and, um, you know, this before the show aired, before the theme song was finished. I said, where are you from? He says, well, I'm from Alaska. Wow. I said, this is great. <laughs> that was the sign. And at that time, you never met anyone from Alaska. And he grew up there. And he got better and better by the time we did the, because um, it wasn't his first instrument, but won't, um, mm -hmm. the solo was a bit of work, but he did an unbelievable job on that solo. And then yeah. in later seasons, when I used him, he was like, you know, he really had mastered that instrument. He could read on it. And, and um, you know, I, I've interacted with him on social media, but he, he, he seems to perform a lot and is based, I don't even know if it's in Amsterdam, but he's, he lives somewhere in Holland and has a band. And nice. he's, he's just nice. a cool guy. I wish he was still in town. But I guess these days it doesn't really matter, you know. If yeah, I want to track with him together, you know, if it comes up, remotely, uh, I would do it. But now it seems like to to make a theme that uses the chromatic harmonica seems like a big statement that I'd get notes on. Maybe not. I was gonna say, yeah, it is such a distinct voice, right. and it's interesting that you're like, okay, I know I want this chromatic harmonica, and of course you say notes from Josh. He says, give me some horns, try this, right. but. That's, I mean, maybe that's part of the magic of the theme song is that it is such an intensely distinct choice for that lead voice. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it is definitely, as Charles said, something that people will recognize, either be shocked by it or really grooving to it, uh, the theme song that is. And it's fun. And you know, yeah. I know it was Josh or somebody else describing the show, calling it a benign universe, but it's a place you want to live. Mm hmm in the town of Northern Exposure and with those people. And it just seems like, oh, life would be great if we all lived in that town. <laughs> right. And I will now skip way to the future okay. and say okay. that, um, 
know if it was my last series, not quite, but Rutherford Falls, which I did two seasons of, mm-hmm. had mm-hmm. so many wonderful similarities. You know, it was a town where indigenous people and non-indigenous people, you know, got together and there was friction. And Ed Helms is the sort of mayor of the town. And it's not, he loves his friends who are from the other side, but, you know, he's he also believes like his family history where they founded the town. It's, it's, it's a lot of interesting stuff. And, and I mm-hmm. wish that show had lasted longer. I think people weren't going to the Peacock Network yet. And then maybe right. they've heard us, you know, because I had so many personal friends who said, how do I watch a show? And I said, well, right now you have to pay for the Peacock Network. And everyone had, I think everyone in, in everywhere got tired of like, I can't do one more subscription service, you know? Right. And so that's a big one. But uh, I, when I was doing it and the music, there's similarities too. Uh, I co-wrote, um, with they're now called hallucination but they're a great indigenous band and they're a hip-hop indigenous band now they at the end of the first season they changed their name to hallucination mm-hmm. and half of our um crew and our showrunner sierra arnellis is indigenous it's hard to say because they're not a tribe called red who's now hallucination they're canadian so they're native canadian okay but it's tim and bear and you know it was the pandemic and so when we started i believe bear was living on a reservation and it just you know, wow. and yet there was contrast. He's like a brilliant guy. He can talk freely about film and literature and all these things and, and knows all this stuff. And in fact, Bear didn't even talk for the first season. We thought he doesn't, you know, he'd be just on the back couch and everyone was on Zoom. So it was hard to tell. Yeah. Anyway, but I just found similarities in that. And uh, uh, I, I, I wish we could see Northern in an easier way. And I wish that Rutherford had some more seasons, but it was an incredible experience. And working with those guys, because you don't know, Someone you don't know that you're suddenly going to be co-writers with, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just had a great deal of respect for each other. And um, sometimes they'd get the more emotional cue. Uh, the end title was more mine than theirs. And that's a hip hop piece. And uh, we just really learned from each other. It was great. And an amazing thing, I was here and searching for the theme, which is usually going to be a big part of the sound. Sometimes not. Um and my daughter, who's a great musician, walks in and she says, oh, I have an idea. Like, like I don't know if I asked her or she asked me, but because I, I had a, a little chord structure up. And she's the type of person who just like, she says she has an idea, like the whole thing. You know, it was like you could hear it as soon as she started to sing it. Mm-hmm. And it was just really incredible. And so that day, Lucy and I, my daughter, uh, we made a demo and I sent it to Mike Scher and Ed, who were, you know, Mike was um, the showrunner in the first season solely. And I hadn't even met Sierra yet. And then in the second season, Mike had her take over or she took over. I don't know how that worked, but it was, you know, equally great. Anyway, so the next morning I get an email and I don't usually get that fast response from <laughs> from um, the editor and Mike. And they go like, did you write this? I said, well, that's a weird question. Seems <laughs> 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 a little confrontational. Why? They said, no, this is it. like, we can't stop listening to it. It's so great. But they didn't say it was the theme. And then there was this meeting with the four producers, Sierra and Ed Helms. And there was this hesitation. And I guess Sierra felt it wasn't enough coming from the indigenous side. And we talked about that, you know. And and so um, uh, Tim and Bear, uh, you know, who are hallucination added some stuff to it. And they were liking it a little more, but they still, the word that came, and I don't love the tw- the word, was twee. It's a little twee. <laughs> you know, I think because it was so catchy yeah. uh, that came from there. And then there was this meeting where all the producers brought in like five of their favorite artists. I don't recommend this method. They thought it was great. It was fun because we got we sat there for two hours and listened to all these songs. And they said, okay, go. 
And it was a very, you know, there was country music there. There was tons of cool indie bands, R&B, things from the 20s, things from now. And so I wrote another, I think, 17 main titles, mostly myself, I think. um, And then the guys in in Tribe or Hallucination, whatever we're calling them this year, um, Mm -hmm. they wrote one or two. And, you know, we went through this whole thing only to come back to the original one. But it did take them working on it for a while um and they they made it more hip-hop they made it more indigenous and they added like cool things that would probably never have come out of my studio yeah so we were all very happy of it and my my daughter you know she sang on certain things she wrote a couple of cues with me just because she was there and if she's singing it often becomes a co-writing thing yeah you know more talented than anybody uh and it was just really (laughs) fun And, and her thing was like they wanted to um they wanted to talk about the main title after we written it. So I said, why don't you come to the note? She said, well, you have to tell them that I'm not six years old. I said, no, I know you're 33. <laughs> <laughs> or she was 30. Maybe she was 30 at the time. She says, I, I wrote it with my daughter. And she thought that they were thinking, you know, I wrote it with the toddler. Uh, that's very hard thought right there. So, but, but, you know, she was charming in the meeting. And then there was, there was one point where we did this great interview. I don't know if it's still available. The guys from Hallucination with Ed Helms sort of moderating and my daughter. I have seen something on YouTube where it's sort of like four screens up. Yeah, yeah. And your daughter comes in at some point. Cause I was trying to find the, I wanted to, I haven't seen this show, Rutherford Falls. I was trying to listen to the theme, uh-huh. but I saw that video, which I think features some of the theme music in it. Uh, yes, it's highly recommended the show. I just remember my daughter telling me that I, like the whole time I was like that. Um, it's sort of my way of, I have to get a chair that holds me straight up and have better posture. You've been pretty well composed in this, uh, in this meeting. Okay. I was going to say, yeah, I've been following also, I see um, your daughter is an accomplished musician in her own yes, right in that you've collaborated a lot. I know, uh, or actually, I don't know, but this is what I've read is that, uh, you, well, I've seen a lot of different credits that you share together. But um, is it true that she is the uh, vocalist in, I mean, I'm oh, sure yeah. she's in a lot of uh, Arrested Development, but uh, who says Mr. F? Yeah, she's that- <laughs> part of Mr. F in, in, in kind of accent. Uh, and, yeah. and I think she was 14 when that happened. Oh, wow. And oh, wow. In those years, uh, I would always call her like late at night because we've been doing the songwriting late at night and, and her and Gabe love each other. And uh but this wasn't even game because this was score and she got the Mr. F part and uh, yeah, it became legendary and uh, she'll be embarrassed. But like I said, can you come down to the studio? There's a couple of people here and work on this. And and she goes like, well, do I have to get on my pajamas? And I said, yeah, it's going to be professional. <laughs> but, <laughs> but now, you know, since the pandemic, everyone's in their pajamas all the time. Right. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to ask, so you're kind of talking about working back and forth for Rutherford Falls, like kind of, Re uh, reworking the theme and just putting out a lot of different music. And uh, maybe it wasn't even the theme at the time. You're just kind of writing music. But to bring it to Northern Exposure, I was curious. It sounds like you maybe did some spotting sessions. You know, you had you had some direction on what spots you needed to fill with music. But what was it like typically? Were you spotting or were you just kind of coming up with music to... No, always spotted okay. rather lengthy and, and and sort of intense spots because there are passionate people about their opinions. And and, mm-hmm. and there's a great producer who went on to The Sopranos, Martin Brisley. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was an associate producer when I started and then he became, I think, well, some higher level of producer. <laughs> the Martin next I was, level. <laughs> but either there or when we'd review music, Martin would try to hear 
every piece of music ever written against the scene. Oh. To where other producers were screaming, Martin, you have to stop now, you know. <laughs> but I, or I saying to me, are you going to let him do this any longer? I said, I, look, he's my boss. I may be older than him, but, but, but and if he wants to do it, we're going to do it. So it was always like that. And, uh, and, and Josh had an incredible musical mind. I mean, I, early on in the first season, he said, oh, can we have some music here like, that's like stuff? And I said, you mean the band of New York studio musicians, <laughs> Franklin's backup band. And yeah. I idolized, he said, yeah, that stuff. And it's, <laughs> it's always hard to do, you know, like when your band so iconic, right. Okay. And, uh, you know, Josh asked for some West African music. And then uh, I think it was the seventh ap- episode. Josh goes, have you seen the episode? And I was coming into spot with him then. I said, no, we're going to do it right now. I'll see you at the office. He says, well, it, it's not, he said a lot worse. He said, it's not very together. So, <laughs> He was worried about it, he says. And it's a throwback episode 100 years ago. And can you get an orchestra with like 150 people? And I said, Josh, you know, one thing I did, because I I came in late to the game and I didn't really know what I was doing. I just thought it was easier to always tell the truth than to bluff my way saying, oh, yeah, I can write for a big orchestra or something like that. And I I think that worked in my favor just because I'm a terrible liar. And I said, Josh, you know, Again, I, I don't really know, but that, you know, I've played in orchestras, but 150 would be record breaking more than, you know, the biggest Hollywood films at this point. He says, well, just get a lot of people. So um, <laughs> I knew who the big contractor is. She, she actually contracted my little show with two or three musicians, but Sandy DeCrescent was the power in orchestra contracting in, in, in LA at that time. And I said, uh, we need 65 players. And and we had uh, Sean Murphy, John Williams engineer on the Sony uh scoring stage mm-hmm. i mean it was so incredible and mm-hmm. that was the incredible part the uh, unincredible part was i had less than a week <laughs> you know? yeah. <laughs> yeah and uh, but josh said you know get a big orchestra and and you know nobody stopped it he could do that and it was incredible awesome. uh, and that happened four or five times on the show none as big as that first one was that do you think that was the um so you mentioned it was like 100 years ago is that like the episode I think it's called Sicily, where they go, like, it's kind of like the founding of the town, and it's like sort of a Western town. That's a great orchestra one, where it has Russian themes in it, too. Oh, that's a Zaria, I well, think, Zaria. which we just watched. In, the first in one, they're looking for a friend of theirs has died. Oh, um, a Kodiak moment. No, oh, wait. you're good. Wait, is that Jesse the Bear episode? Um, no, 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 no. A friend of, friend of this have died would, would be uh, Three Amigos, I think. Yeah, yeah, that would be three amigos out there. Three amigos. Uh, uh, yeah, and they head out on horseback. And, and yes, in the snow. That's three amigos. Uh, yeah. Coffin. The photography is unbelievable. It's a, it's a really great story. And like that's the thing that that show could take a turn like that for one episode mm. and have a, a show. I mean, now you see that more often. You know, they'll have uh, like in The Last of Us. I don't know if you guys have been watching that at all. I've been watching yeah. it. Yeah. There's that one-off episode. You know about the two guys and yes, I don't, yeah, like episode it three. exists in a vacuum. It didn't yeah. really tie to the other episodes. It made sense because they're geniuses, and uh, I, yeah, it was interesting. So this was sort of like the first one-off episode that I remember of Northern, right? And uh, and so I got this orchestra, and you know, I, I think I I was just too busy to be as scared as I should have been. Um, mm-hmm. My good buddy who still is nearby, uh, Phil Giffen was an orchestrator. And I said, can you orchestrate this? And can you conduct? He said, yeah. And he says, I, I can help you. You know, if you haven't done an orchestra, let me come in there and help. And he'd show up about midnight every night, more of a night owl than me. Mm-hmm. He would just like walk around my studio and like straighten my sweater and fold things. And <laughs> I said, 
Oh, Austin, can you run the console or the tape machine or do anything? He's no, but I can neat and thick. <laughs> he was brilliant. He's, he just said to me, he says, you have the themes here. You have everything here. You just have to elongate them and make them work orchestral. Mm-hmm. So we did that together and worked very late every night. And then at the end of that week, we showed up and had the 65 players. And uh, it went uh, swimmingly well. If I was British, I would say swimmingly. Uh, and uh, no, it went incredibly well. And to this day, if if you can get the producers to come to your orchestra session, wow. they always say they want to come. Yeah, Everyone says the same thing. This is the best day I've ever had on this show. This is so amazing. And they're totally stunned by how good uh, an orchestra of LA musicians is. Yeah, And they yeah. said, if we could get one takes like out of the actors every time, the way you are today and do it all in one day, I mean, we'd be thrilled, you know? And I was amazed too. I had never, you know, I would played on a few sessions, but not like those. And, and somehow I was lucky enough to get the best of the best. Yeah. And this is being scored after the scene is shot. Am I correct in assuming that? Oh, almost everything is once the show is run, run, running. You know, like in Northern, I don't think I ever wrote to not having a scene. Not having a scene. Except, would they... Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt. I was going to say, would they play the scene like over a projector or something so everyone could see it while the they were playing? Scoring stage, the Barbra Streisand. It was then called the Barbra Streisand scoring stage. Mm. When I first did it, I think it was still MGM. Then it became Sony. I'm not sure. And then like the composer had parking spot number one. Maybe John Williams still does. And now you go, <laughs> you got to leave the lot, go a mile down there, park in the gate, take the bus, you know, different now. Uh, so, but I don't do a lot. I still, I've never done a lot. I love it. Every time I do an orchestra, I did a couple with a good place. Obviously the whole Lucy and Desi score was an orchestra. Mm-hmm. But I do have a story there. If you have time. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, uh, Absolutely. You guys have been listening. <laughs> um, yeah, you let you let us know when you need to leave. I, I had a, a wonderful guitarist who's still a wonderful guitarist and, and a friend. And I called him to do this episode. Uh, I guess it was called The Three Amigos. And I said, it's orchestral and you'll be great for it. He says, I see some already committed. I, I feel terrible. I love you. I love your show. Can't do it. So I said, can you recommend somebody? And he said, I shouldn't tell the story. It's bad. Uh, but I do love him. And I think he's one of the great talents. Um, and he said, I'm going to recommend this guy. and You're never going to hire me again. I said, what are you talking about? You know, he says, you'll see. So he made the supreme sacrifice by introducing me to our mutual great friend, George Deering, who is just the most amazing musician I've ever been, had the pleasure of working with. And I still do to this day. And he can just do anything, play any kind of music. And he adds so much. And he's always watching the screen and adding, you know, like half the time I write, or I even if I write a, a, a note for note part for him, I'll say, you know, take a pass, do what you want, you know. And he, he, not only can he play anything with strings on it, he can play horns, brass, lutes, saxophones. I mean, I don't usually get him to do that. <laughs> but, uh, and he doesn't like to be known for that because he feels he's taking someone else's job. But uh, there was there was a period after Arrested Development, we had done so much stuff together that I would try to think, well, we're going to start sounding too much like us. Mm. So I would hand him a guitar lefty. I'd just go like, here, try this. <laughs> and he'd go like, oh, okay. And it would be a perfectly great guitar part that sounded different than if he had played it right hand. Maybe not different enough, <laughs> but that's a freaky thing, you know? Yeah. And, but anyway, so maybe the best story is that first time I met him. So he came into my then garage studio, very, very small. There was like a booth cut out of the garage, a little corner and almost airless in there. And, uh, and he went in there and this is the first piece was this two minute opening uh, 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 with an orchestra. And it was written in my unique way for orchestra and slide guitar. <laughs> and I figured, well, guitarists are readers. That's the 
that's the line on guitarists and and i'm a reader myself and i'm a bass player but uh i said i don't want to put the guitarist under pressure and i don't want to hold up the orchestra i'll, I'll record the guitarist first before the orchestra i didn't know that george is maybe the best reader i've ever seen in my life and everyone um now like first on lucy desi show he was in the booth and i had an orchestra there a string orchestra and sometimes he'd say like you know in in bar 123 that f sharp should be an f don't you think and no one would say that's coming from the guitarist they just changed their parts knowing that, he was, <laughs> that the viola part was wrong and he's just a, <laughs> wow a freak in the best way uh anyway so he came in and he played that part and I was thinking, well, this is perfect, but I want it to sound more rough, like that someone's really playing a slide guitar because he was playing it like it had frets on it and it was beautiful, but it was uh, too perfect. And he comes out of the booth and he says, oh, that was really neat. And I said, great, George, can you go back there and you know rough it up a little bit? And he goes, oh, sure, uh, but you meant this to be in three, four, right? I said, really, what were you looking at? <laughs> <laughs> so he was playing well, in like a different the early days of, of printing it you know because i i hadn't ah. it off to the orchestra copyists and stuff like that and, and it just shot out of digital performer as a 4-4 chart and he said well i just figured where the bar lines would be and he played it without a, a mistake that way so i realized i was dealing with a much higher level well, of intelligence and musical intelligence and throughout the 30 years that we've been working together he'll he'll hear things like the time codes off he said well didn't you hear wow. it skip it two minutes i said no, did you? Wow. <laughs> One more about George. When, when yeah. I, the first thing I did with Mitch Hurwitz before uh, Arrested Development was the last season of the John Larroquette show. And it started out pretty straight comedy scoring, like little two-second cues and stuff like that. Uh, and I didn't know Mitch that, but his personality started coming out towards the end of that season. And, I, you know, then the season I still think was like 22 episodes. So we got to know each other pretty well. And he calls me up on one of the last shows. He says, oh, I totally forgot. Uh, we need two songs for this party scene that sound like the Grateful Dead. And the one thing about George is you don't want to keep him past his bedtime. And we were there at that moment. It was like 10 o'clock. And I said, George, are you cool with this? If not, I'll do it myself. And he said, yeah, just shoot me some chords. So I scribble on a pe paper, you know, just a chord progression. And he plays the whole thing. And we, we're going in. And in the middle of like, I don't know what bar, but in the middle of a bar, he just stops. And I said, something happened? He says, he says no, that was two minutes. And I said, you are just <laughs> like, I don't know any other musician who are internally internal clock tempos, 88 times four beats for, you know, like he, he'd figure that out. And and that makes him sound like, you know, an unthinking nerd, but he's the warmest, nicest person. Mm -hmm. And he's, you know, close with my whole family and everyone who works with, I mean, Tom Newman, a couple of times I had a conversation with Tom Newman. He says, well, I'm worried. Like what if George gets burnt out? And he says, I, I, you know, if I call him at 10 o'clock at night, he's still practicing some other instrument. He, it's all he does. He loves it. He said, but what if he gets burnt out on traffic? I said, I can understand that. <laughs> but I think for George, and I know this because, you know, since the pandemic, I've used him remotely and only had him once in person for this orchestra thing, that that made life easier for him. Okay. Because he's also the world's greatest recording engineer. He has a world-class studio, has had it since the 70s in his second house that he uses as a studio. And, uh, so he can engineer while playing and yeah, getting even better sounds than we can here. And this is a very sophisticated studio here. That's awesome. my joy. He can, oh, I'm sorry. I, I was just saying that he's my idol. So uh, among many other people that I get to work with, that's one of the great things. He can do it all. Yeah. sounds like right there. Uh, it's, I was going to say that it seems that, that you have a good working relationship with George, but I was also wondering in terms of instruments, is there like an instrument in which that you favor nowadays that you gravitate toward and say like, ah, I'm really feeling like X instrument right now in my scores. 
Yeah, I think Q by Q. I mean, I'm writing this new thing. And I talked about with with the guy who's the showrunner of it. And it's a a documentary series. But he was talking about brass. And I don't usually write a lot of brass. And and I started doing it. I haven't brought in real brass players. And and he loved it. I played him one piece. So that's good. Uh, It just every show has a certain thing. And it's not always like like Maggie's name with the piano and the triangle. That's very hard. Mm -hmm. It probably wouldn't have worked as a string quartet. Uh, and then there are themes that can translate to any, you know, instrumentation and they'll still work. And that's, uh, you know, I think the Lucy and Desi score is a chamber orchestra and I, and that's what they wanted. And that's what I wanted from the beginning. And at the beginning, I thought this is going to be hard because they're going to want a lot of Cuban music from me mm-hmm. or Desi, but that really wasn't the case. I wrote one piece that worked and the other stuff had little flavors of it. And Amy very smartly said, no, I don't want the bongos until we see Desi. And at first I didn't get what she was talking about. She's like, well, they haven't earned it yet. You know, so when he comes into the picture, the Latin influences came with him and it was a smart thing. And I, and I, I literally, all I had to do is erase the bongos. And, here. <laughs> but, and they were going to be replaced anyway, because uh, and that was because of the pandemic. Uh, Luis did that stuff at home, the great Luis Conte again. Mm. And, and on the orchestra session, I had 36 strings in George or 36, including George. I just don't do a session if, if, if at all possible, I, ha- I want George there. He didn't, he didn't have a big role, but he saved us a few times, you know. Nice. I was lucky enough to get that art. You know, I've been doing this a long time, so I had every string player that I liked. And we were just lucky to get them because there could be a day where you need 30 str- th- six strings and you don't get one of the people you've worked before. Mm-hmm. But there's probably yeah. 10 orchestras of great string players in this town, you know, that you could use and they'd all be great. I'm always amazed by that. And when I started, I always wanted string players who could play like Stefan Grappelli or play Cajun styles or, or play country styles. And there were two guys who were great, Sid Page and Charlie Bisharat, both of who I still work with and adore. And, but if you ask the average violinist back then, oh, can you improvise a little Cajun thing? They'd say, you write it out and I will. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, that's what the then acting principle of violinist of the LFL told me when we needed a bluegrass thing for northern exposure Interesting. Uh, yeah. um who is that you guys will know that i can ask you these questions so um <laughs> the violinist who was st- who was obsessed with maurice's guarnieri violin Ooh, the guarnieri yes. del jesu uh how cal ingraham was his right. name, the character's name right and and he was then in the woods like he stole the violin do i have this right he stole the violin and he was like out in the woods and everyone was looking for him maurice wanted him arrested uh-huh mm-hmm. yeah really interesting <laughs> i thought we, we we had like very similar views on it me and lee where we thought that it was it was a tragedy because it, he was he obviously loved the the violin so much right there and that he did not feel complete without playing it he had a bond with it and i, I lee you can correct me if you want because i believe there's two they have two distinct endings because he appears in two different episodes and different seasons right there mm-hmm. and its arc has a different resolution on each one but i believe on the first one it ends where he returns back to the asylum like they cannot find another way for them to resolve the resolution within them they just say like you just go back and you just stay with them and you're like you're deemed insane uh because of your love for the violin and i always thought that was such a uh, at least to me i always felt there was a very depressing ending for what <laughs> We ultimately took to be a very optimistic show. I, I, I remember him being in, in, in the mental hospital. Yes. Yeah. And, and they bring and him they, the violin so that he can play it in there. Right. 
Yeah, and and Maurice doesn't soften on his stance. To, or he does, I guess. He lets him play it. Just, but yeah, yeah. Uh, it should be his violin. Of course, he didn't buy it. Maurice did it as an investment and, you know, cold, artless way. But Maurice is a really great character. I mean, mm-hmm. Barry could just... Well, there's other great characters in the world, but, like, in, in that someone should be hateable, but he's lovable. You know, you always see the heart in Maurice. Right, right. You need the antagonistic force. Right. Otherwise, I mean, that's all story is, is that you just need a good conflict. You need the way to resolve it, and you need a way for your characters to grow from this conflict. So Maurice offers this great pushback amongst the town of Sicily of someone that, like, it doesn't necessarily jive with let's just all con- come together as a community of Sicily. He's always looking forward. He wants to build it into the Alaskan Riviera. Yeah. He wants to develop into something more. It was just in that particular plot line. I, I remember we were having like a 30 minute conversation just on this, <laughs> me and me. We were saying, we were debating and saying like, is that right for him to keep the violin right here? Because, and, and you're a musical expert, so maybe you can correct us on this, but the way it was phrased in the episode, it sounded like the violin would ultimately go to waste. Like he, the so, way it was phrased. What Charles is saying. So in the episode, they say, I don't know if you would know this, but they say, uh, if you don't play a violin of that type, it it will die. Like it'll go cold. And I've heard about warming up instruments, but I don't know if that's actually. Yes. Okay. So there happen to be five upright bases on my property now, four in this studio. <laughs> and if I don't play one for a while, it's going to be a bad couple of days, but it mm-hmm. will come back. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, great violins are, you know, 200, 300 years old, and and they can be brought back to life by luthiers, you know, when they need repair, but just mm. by being played. And But I, I think there's something about an instrument that gets played every day that's, you know, I had for a while a friend of mine's old Fender Telecaster. So not that old. I think it was from 1967, but, you know. Yeah. And I always thought this should play better, but when we play it, it, it gets better, especially when George plays it. Okay. <laughs> so it can always come back is what you're saying. Like it's, it, it can never get to a situation where it's permanently in disrepair. Right. There, there are, there are ones that are, you know, run over by cars and they come back upright bases. Cause it's oh, right. oh, wow. But, but there's probably ones that they say like, this was never that great in the first place. We're not going to like uh, the great Scott LaFaro, who was in the first Bill Evans trio is a hero of all bass players. And he died very young in a car accident. So that bass was with him and the car caught fire. And then it was a Colstein's bass shop in Long Island and Colstein's caught fire. So that bass was in two. Wow. It never should have come out. And and Barry Colstein, who's the son of Sam, uh, restored the bass a number of years ago. And he lets great players use it every now and then. Wow. Uh, oh, okay. So then that's like hyperbolic language. Stuff that it could come back from. But I, 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 there's something interesting about Maurice loving the instrument so he can put it in a safe and not play it yeah. and think about the value and that he owns the best violin in Alaska and probably in, in North America. And and this violinist has been searching for, the, you know, the perfect instrument. I will say that I have one very small bass there that I've coveted my whole life and it's in my studio, but I'm not allowed to keep it. So I feel a little bit of that. And I don't play it because I don't want to get used to it. It, it belonged to my high school best friend's dad. And uh, Sandy Block was a great bass player, and his son Jerry is my pal. And uh, Jerry loves it because it's his father's, and emotionally, no one in the family plays the bass. And you know, I've offered a couple of times to buy it, and and I realize that he wants it because it's his father, you know, and that's it. But then mm-hmm. two years ago, he said, "Can I hold on to it for a year while he moves?" And he still hasn't picked it up. And I don't play it, and I'd like to. It's really an extraordinary instrument, yeah. but I feel it's also a very small scale. 
So okay. if I got used to it, I'd have to get used to it back the other way. Right. And I'd, I'd have to put work into it. I don't want to put a, a lot of work into it that if I can't, you know, yeah, have it. If you can't so keep it. It's all interesting things with instruments. Yeah. But uh, for that, they had me record. At that time, we were doing, oh, for that character, like there was, you know, when he played in the woods, I was hiring Alex Traeger, who was the acting principal of the LA Phil. And he'd come with a Stradivari. Mm. But he, he had the Strat. And then when he became the acting principal, he had a better Strat. And it was amazing. You could really hear the difference. I didn't think, you know, I think wow. it's Alex's hands, but there was something magical about the better Strat. So the session was here. And in those days, Martin Bruce, the producer I talked about, was always here. And there were other producers and stuff. No one wants to come to your studio anymore. Like, I just redecorated after a long time. And I realized no one's going to see <laughs> no this. No one's coming back. <laughs> no one's coming back. But it's yeah. the and even before the pandemic, they had stopped. They were just too busy. So um, wait, what were we just talking about? I remember uh, the recording that oh, recording session. Yeah. So uh, I'm in here and Alex, the great violinist is in there playing the classical music that um, the character played in the woods. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think he was here for part of that to learn the actor um, who wasn't a violin player. And then um, we found another violinist who went up for a couple of weeks who coached him every day. Oh, so you had recorded that piece and he had to match it or like right. fake it. It's really hard. And they also cut the music for comedy, you know, oh, which okay. makes, yeah. sometimes makes the character playing an instrument on screen look wrong. Uh, I'll try to say that tactfully. Uh, and so uh, we did that. And then Martin says, and you know, he's very Russian, this Alexander Traeger, one of, one of the greats. And, and Martin's sitting next to me, he says, get him to play Turkey in the Straw. Because in the show, in, in the, there's a jug band in the mental hospital where the character gets sick. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I said, Martin, I'm not going to ask Alexander Traeger to play Turkey in the Straw. He says, Martin says to me, you said he was the best violinist. <laughs> said, yeah, he is. He's the best classical violinist, arguably, in town, you know. And he says, well, why can't he play it then? <laughs> Just this moment. <laughs> so, I hope I don't embarrass him. But the... Uh, so he persists and he says, just ask him, just ask him. He's the best but <laughs> <laughs> No shame. I walk through those doors and I say, hey, Alex, do you know Turkey Nistra? And he goes, you'd write it out, I play it. <laughs> so <laughs> we do just that. We write it out. Nice. And Josh Brand actually called me that same day. He says, what is this? <laughs> I said, Mark asked the great Russian pedagogue and, and violinist to play Turkey in the Straw. And, and that's not his thing, you know. He says, well, what are we going to do? I said, I, I, I know Byron Berline. He's one of the great bluegrass bar. He's worked with us before. And I'll call him in. That night, Byron comes in. He says, you don't want turkey in the straw. Everybody does that. You want cabbage pants or cabbage soup or something. Um, again, misquoting. And it was incredible. And I took photos of both so that the actor. But, you know, it would have been Byron probably could have played a convincing classical thing. And, and, and Alex could get through turkey in the straw. But it was an interesting. Yeah. That's cool. there. And like that's why a, um, amalgamation finding string players who could do it all was uh -huh. really that this generation kind of can and also kind of has to yeah. have to be versatile so someone who's playing for the la film might do a different kind of session in the daytime and certainly the session players who do the studio sessions may be playing in clubs and you know everybody has to do a lot of different jobs which is both good and challenging too yeah so talking about Cal Ingraham and in that episode, if you have, if anything comes to mind, were there any episodes that you were fond of, or I guess more specifically, any pieces of music that you composed? Because I know, I mean, obviously they're in the show um, and there's only a couple selections on the, um, 
on the music from Northern Exposure CDs uh, that feature your music. Is there any music that you remember fondly? I'm so bad. There was something in Sophie Sanderson, the third episode that I yeah. really liked. Oh, yeah. It was. I remember liking it musically. I remember um, starting to write swing tunes. Ooh. And, and and country themes. And I started to do a lot of the stuff that was on the jukebox. And Chris was playing on the radio. If they oh, were nice. Even some vocal ones that were me. And they sort of said, <laughs> David can do this. We can spend more money on these songs. And David can cover this thing that sounds like 1920s jazz. This one particular jazz song that I wrote with my piano player, Billy, Bill Elliott, not Billy Elliott. That's a different movie. Uh, uh, Bill Elliott's now a professor of um, composition, I believe, at the Berkeley School of Music. He left town a while ago. But he, he did some great stuff. Something Alaskan Nights, it's called. There is one on uh, on that music for Northern Exposure disc. And it's actually, it was like one of the only songs I could find on YouTube. But yeah, that is such a beautiful. Uh, and I, I remember Dancing on the Grave, Ruth yeah. Ann and Dancing on the Grave. And that was just like a musical moment. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I brought in some different kind of string players. And it was weird because it was accordion and strings and uh, had had a weird sound to it, but it was really great. Uh, yeah, it has an interesting like percussive thing going on some sort of yeah. like i don't know what yeah. the i don't know what instrument it is or that might have been alex acuna playing percussion i don't know and oh, wow. uh i remember doing some tangos uh mr streisand's tango like some of these <laughs> tunes i have in my current reel so i see them every now and yeah, then okay <laughs> and then then there was a, a piece from Marilyn maryland that's just solo guitar well we have to talk wait let's go back we're talking okay. about the last of us you saw the scenes with marilyn and i don't and know leonard uh, or the character yes. leonard yeah oh my god i was screaming my family didn't know we were watching it together and, and i said this is so great two yeah. unbelievable characters and and marilyn's just as funny as she ever was and right. you know you if she's okay i heard she had some health problems years ago and uh, mm-hmm. that just and, and i saw rob morrow um said the same thing on facebook and and rob yeah. is a neighbor i i see him in town oh that's funny but, uh, <laughs> well, were you ever, did you ever go up to set? I mean, that's pretty I far did. away. You did. did. Um, was it frequent or just every once? Or? Two or three times. Um, the one time in particular, there was, it was Josh's last episode. Okay. And somebody, I don't know if it was Josh's idea. Somebody wanted it to be like an operetta where everyone would sing their, their, their dialogue. Mm. In their lines. Yeah. And it never happened. And it was also one of those things where someone came in with an Aretha album, someone came in with a Stravinsky album, someone came in with musical theater from Broadway, and they just left it to me. And I was just sending over all kinds of things that were getting rejected or not. And then it just seemed, and again, I, I can't talk to them, but it seemed that the actors were not comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. And so only Shelley sings. Yeah. And they, they're, they're, right. they're, they're making it try to sound believable as a hysterical pregnancy and that she's singing all the time. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and she comes to uh, Dr. Fleshman to be examined and Rob doesn't want to do it. And, uh, doesn't want to uh, sing yeah, in the rehearsal. He got really okay. big laughs and everybody thought, Oh, this is going to be great. And then he said, you know what? My character wouldn't do this. I wouldn't do it. And my character's smarter than me. Some actor kind of statement. There. <laughs> very nice, very nice. <laughs> and, uh, and now everyone's looking at me. All the producers are coming like, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, yeah, I'll ask him again. But I, don't, you know. <laughs> and, and Rob was really nice about it. He's a super yeah. nice guy. And, and, and I love it when I see him because like those times, like for me, when I did that show, it took up every minute of my life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, except I had, two young kids and I would spend whatever family time I could. And I had my studio in my backyard. 
but like the people that I knew were those people on the screen. And yeah. in reality, I didn't know them at all. So those couple of times where I hanging out with all of them, it seemed like some bizarre, bizarre old world where they were real. You know, it's like it totally yeah. freaked me out. Like, oh, there's Rob and there's Janine. And I knew them better as their characters. And uh, so there were a couple of parties in L.A., rap parties. But most of the action took place up there in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that time I went up there was really nice. But there was a lot of tension that day. And it worked out. Shelly sang the, the song and Rob didn't. Mm-hmm. And you know, whether it would have been better the other way, I, I can never tell you. And I, I think it was around the time of cop rock. Do you remember that at all? No. What is yeah. Cop- uh, Charles. It was a Va- Bob- I vaguely cop- know about that show where everybody said they just broke out the song. And because I was a musician, and I knew a lot of the singers and nice. it was, it was kind of cool, but just, I mean, it's the kind of thing that would happen now when people would go, Oh, that's a quirky show. That'll last a season on Amazon yeah. mm-hmm. like that, but it didn't. <laughs> and I think it got a season. But everyone thought it was going to be the biggest thing in the world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's only it's referenced now as like a punchline. Like if you watch like modern television sitcom shows and are trying to like reference something from the '90s or '80s, and they're like they'll bring up cop rock. Yeah, you know? uh, like, yeah. Somebody, somebody was just on uh, James Corden or one of the late night shows. It might have been Seth Meyers, and they brought a. It was one of the actors who had been in it early on. It might have been Katie Segal, who I know, but. I, I'm not sure of that fact. And uh, they showed a clip of it. It was hysterical, but I thought it was really good looking back at it. It could have lasted. <laughs> uh, anyone watched, you would have had to watch it in the last day or so, uh, Daisy Jones and the Six? No, I haven't, I haven't seen no. it. It's been it's uh, about, popping man, up. It's a great book. I read the book and I was really excited about it and I would have loved to have been the composer. Uh, I think the main composer is um, someone we've worked with, my daughter and me, Blake Mills, who is one of the great musical geniuses and a great guy. And it's got... Um, Marcus Mumford writing songs, um, Jackson Brown. Um, now I can't remember her name. She's a great younger female songwriter. Um, usually dresses as a skeleton. Help me here. Oh, Phoebe Bridgers. Yeah, Phoebe. And that whole crowd is sort of like adjacent to Lucy's crowd because a lot of mm-hmm. the things happened at Tony Berg's music, at Tony mm-hmm. Berg's studio, when, especially when Tony. Has there- Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, sorry to interrupt you. That was just something I was really curious about. You you just said that you would have loved to have scored for it. Is there actually a television show or a film in which like you genuinely wanted to score for it and you actually got the opportunity to do so? Well, everything I've got, I can say that about. Everything I didn't yeah. get. If you do it long enough, you there's a lot, at least in my career, there's a lot of things you don't get more than you do get, you know, and you're very grateful. The ones I've gotten, I wouldn't change that for anything, you know. Mm-hmm. There's great ones I've lost. Um I, I wrote a score for P.T. Anderson's first film, Heart Eight. Um, oh, nice. But it was called Sydney. But it wasn't mm-hmm. nice because he was <laughs> then uh, at, 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 he was not getting along with the producers. He had left the production and they wanted to finish the film and they hired me. And oh, they, wow. I have a great deal of love for him and said he's going to be a major filmmaker. Uh, and then uh, he had, again, I don't want to state any of this as fact because it's all secondhand, but he had submitted the film to Cannes, I believe, and it got accepted. And that pressured the film company to give him back his film. Mm. He used, um, I think Michael Penn did his score. Uh, it may have been Michael Penn and John Bryan. It okay. were incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I don't think P.T. Anderson ever heard my score or the post the way they finished it. But I thought it was one of the best things I did. And everybody heard it, loved it. And it never got out of the box. So, you know, and that happens. Wow. So yeah. If, if you do it, if you're lucky enough to do it long enough, but I, I wouldn't trade Arrested Development or The Good Place or Northern Exposure or, you know, I can't say that about Veep, not that I didn't love it, but I just did the last season. Okay. And I mm-hmm. tried to convince them to stay with their composers because I thought they did a great job, but I guess the relationship <laughs> had worn through and they mm-hmm. wanted to try something else. 
and you know to work with these people or anything I've done with Amy Poehler or it's extraordinary you know and I didn't expect that I you know I didn't think I would be a composer so it was all bonus for me not that it wasn't hard it was incredibly hard and lots of stress and in, in, involved with it you know because you're always on some deadline yeah I, even if it's self-imposed you know um you know I'll tell people well, I can't go to this thing because you know I have something due a week from now but I know if I don't write that night you know I'm not going to stay on track yeah and I'm pretty fast and you know you can always covet somebody else's job but then I usually think if it's a great show that the person who they got to be the composer was the right choice right because you don't say this is a great show with terrible music <laughs> yeah it, it just and it's even rare the other way around or not rare but similar that you hear a great score in a mm-hmm. movie mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like what is this doing here well right how could and how could that be because they, they work off each other yeah if you're inspired by what's in front of you then how are you going to write great music? And even if it's great music, it's not going to play well because what it's supporting is not as strong. And I don't know of many examples of that. You know, people talk about that. I don't really see it when they say that. Someone will say to me, but the score was so great. I said, yeah, I guess it was. But for me, I didn't relate to this film or show, you know? Yeah. It'd be an interesting conversation to have, try to come up with 10 examples either way. That'd be hard. (laughs) It would be be hard hard for me, at least. (laughs) So I, I respect anyone that does it, you know, and... Or sometimes I've thought of a certain composer, oh, I could have gotten that, or I would have been better than that. And then I'll hear the music, and then I'll meet the person. And, and they become my really good friend, or I just at least really think, oh, this person is great and perfect for the job. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's a it's not a productive road to say, I would have been better at that. And that wasn't what you were asking. You're just saying, there's plenty of shows you know I would have loved to have done. you know, And some mm-hmm. of them I got close on, too. Um, but it, it seems, you know, and, and in my career... I'm friends with a lot of composers, so I'll get a job that's a pretty big job. And like someone will come up to me and say, oh, congratulations, man. You know, it got down to you and me, but, you know, glad you got it. And then eight other composers will tell me the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) And and I've been the same thing. I've been tempted to say that. And I said, you know, I probably wasn't the only other person, you know. And and the reasons they, they, they choose for stuff. You just don't know. You, they don't tell you usually. You know, I can yeah. count on one hand the time someone's called me. Oh, we really love what you did, but you know, we had a connection with this other person. Mm-hmm. All right, you want one more story? I'll tell you one. It's a good one. I'm at a wedding in New York. I have six years ago, and I was really glad. I've been working really hard, and I didn't want an extra job, but I got a call from my agent. This is unbelievable new show, HBO, and they're really interested in you. And I can't tell you anything about it, but it's Bill Hader. And it's going to be called Barry. And are you interested in? I said, yeah, I love Bill Hader. Mm-hmm. And they said, but you need to, you know, be here to do it. And I said, well, I went to the wedding yesterday. I'm supposed to stay here another four days. Uh, we have Broadway tickets, but I'm just going to, you know, talk to my wife and then I'll, I'll just take a flight back. And because I'm me, I figured I had to buy a synthesizer that I could write on the plane with. Wow. And you know what the <laughs> OP1 is? What's that? OP1? It's like the little small... Yeah, it's this little yeah. toy thing that costs $1,000. It makes amazing... <laughs> yeah. And, and I was giving up on it, but my wife doesn't give up on anything. She found like a guy in the Bronx who was willing to drive down to the hotel we were staying at in Brooklyn where the wedding was. Mm-hmm. And it was like this... To deal sell on, you? To sell you yeah, one? Or? It's a cash deal in the lobby. And I found out like um, <laughs> this big Russian guy who was a friend of the bride um, was like felt like the deal was going to go wrong. And he was hiding behind a palm. <laughs> Oh my lord! <laughs> two hours later, I, I take the OP one and I get on the plane, and you know I flew from New York, 
to, to Los Angeles. I didn't get one note down. I couldn't figure out how to oh use it. Oh my God. <laughs> I'll sit and eat my dinner. And because I always hear about people who can ride on a plane or ride on vacation. Mm-hmm. That hasn't been me so far. Yeah. I guess I've done it under pressure, but under so, pressure. <laughs> so, uh, and I was very, you know, and so I pretty much worked every minute for three days. And um, I brought in a guy who did a lot of, um, he was my assistant, but he was really good at EDM stuff. So we changed sort of my music by adding EDM filters to oh, wow. more like my music, but it, it really came out great. And, uh, and I didn't get it, you know, and, and what I heard was like, oh, they really loved your music and they just had a guy they were comfortable with who they'd already worked with, yeah, which is fine. And, but you never know if that's the story, you know, so you, you hear this and about six months later, now Barry had come out and I thought it was great and I loved the music and everything about it. And it was, that first season was fantastic. I'm swimming in the local high school for exercise. I'd hurt my, I'm normally a runner or a tennis player, but when I get hurt, I go to the pool. So mm-hmm. uh, I story longer than it has to be. And I, you know, I'm pulling myself out of the pool and I realize I'm about to hit Bill Hader. You know, he's like standing right there by the edge of the pool. And he had kids there for some party or something like that. And his face was so close to mine that I said, hi, Bill, you don't know me, but, you know, I, I sent some music. I was, you know, when you were looking for a composer, he says, oh, really? He goes like, uh, wow, what's your name? And I said, David Trussi. He says, oh, I totally remember you. He, he says, you wrote great stuff. And I said in the room, I said, like, this guy could do anything. We could ask this guy to do anything and he could do Because I sent a bunch of different choices, which I don't usually do. I usually send, if I'm demoing for that, I'll send what I think was right. But I came up with something. Another time my daughter walked through and I had this sort of jazzy melody happening. And she mm-hmm. said, that should be this song. And she sings this song. Nice. So we sent four versions of that and two other cues or something like that. And it was just great. First of all, I liked him a lot, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, I had met him once before. But the fact that that I just liked him a lot and he said the story that I heard was very comforting in a way, you know. Yeah. And I'm happy for the guys who do it or the guy who does it. They do a great job. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not often that good about it. You know, you go through a period of like, oh, f- I didn't get this. And then mm-hmm. you have to go next. Right. I, I, I am actually really, oh, I'm sorry. Like, I always tend to cut you off right here. This is, uh, you don't have to answer this if this is something that, like, you feel is broaching on uh, privacy right here. But uh, me and Lee are giant, um, along with being Northern Exposure fans, are also really big fans of the television show The West Wing uh-huh. from the 1990s and the 2000s. Uh-huh. And we're really into W.G. Snuffy Walden. D- do you know that composer at all or no? Well, he was a really good friend. And not that he's not now. We just are not in the same pass anymore. In fact, mm-hmm. We were both in Michael Ruff's band in the 80s. Wow. And Michael Ruff is, and still is an incredible talent. Michael lives in Hawaii. And sometimes if I go to Hawaii, I'll play a gig with him, which is just ridiculous. Because I said, well, Michael, don't you have a bass player? He said, well, I'll tell him to go to the bar for a set. You you come and, and yeah. you know, I'll lend you a bass. Awesome. But he was one of the most talented people I've ever met. And I, we were all surprised when Michael suddenly went to Hawaii and never came back. Because it seemed like his career was going to go global. And, uh, and, but while I was in Michael's band, Snuffy said, Hey, I, I got this thing. It's a TV show. It's called 30 something, you know? And then that led to his career. Mm. And, and Peter Horton was always at, at the Michael Ruff shows. He was a big fan and f- good friend of Michael's. And I remember I gave or I sold Michael my first, had an Akai Porta studio thing. It was bigger than a Porta studio. It was my first studio. And he came by, Michael came by to pick it up with Peter Horton from 30 something. And I said, hey, Peter, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm doing this show. It's about you guys. I said, me and Jody, my wife? He says, yeah, it's about, you know, they're having babies like you. You know, it's, you're going to like it. And then uh, Snuffy, uh, you know, I have not watched a lot of West Wing. I've watched a lot of Snuffy's work. And he's a great mm-hmm. composer. 
you know, he's had an incredible career. And how can I say this the right way? Um, he's almost always done giant hits that stay on forever, which mm-hmm. I definitely envy that. But I wouldn't mm-hmm. trade him for my quirkier shows that are <laughs> streaming now and make less money. Uh, and, and, you know, he's, he's a great guy and an unbelievable guitar player and a great composer. Mm-hmm. And, and then like within a year of him getting that job, I was asked to do Northern Exposure. And he was the first person I called. I said, like, uh, I have no idea how to do this. Wow. And he just said, well, you just will. I said, is that your best advice? <laughs> 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 like, well, it's more like you'll have so much fear and guilt that you, you'll, you'll, you won't fail. And I said, yeah. That's, I understand that. And that was the part that really, and he, he, um, he gave me the name of one of the agents at Garfane Schwartz, uh, who became my first agent. So uh, nice. it's funny because Voss, who was then the junior agent at Garfane Schwartz, which was a big agency in town, got on the phone like in a second, which never happened again ever in my career. But he said, oh, you're the guy who got that. They were, And it was true. They were also, he said, everyone in town tried for this. So I wanted to see who you were. And I said, great, can you be my agent? And he said, no, we're not taking anybody in. <laughs> and well, I said, really? Okay. And I really, you know, I had to come for this and not knowing anything. He said, but here, like, meet me tomorrow at this restaurant in Studio City, and I'll tell you what you need to do to make the deal. Mm. So we get there and we have this very fun lunch and he writes seven things on a napkin and he says ask for this and uh i, I did and they said no you don't have an agent and we don't know who you are like <laughs> so i mean this terrible negotiation thing and they and they <laughs> and uh and they uh, and they said and they knew voss really well we can't take him because he's not officially your agent i believe that's bull- <laughs> but yeah. so get a lawyer and we'll sign the deal and a friend of mine had a music lawyer and this guy wrote them a letter with 70 things that he wanted in, in the contract and i think correctly they rejected him too mm-hmm. and and i had to let him go it was very contentious it was very stressful i was trying to do the show um I had i wasn't getting paid and i didn't have any money and i was just running my credit card dry mm-hmm. uh when after about three weeks of that cheryl who hired me called me up and said, we feel bad. Like, we didn't take your agent. We didn't take your lawyer. What did you want? So I found that scrap of paper, the napkin. <laughs> and I said, these seven things. She said, oh, not a problem. We can do that easily. Nice. It was one funny thing. It said, and it, one thing is don't pay. It was a thing in all composers' contracts. You don't pay for optical tape, which is the tape that the show is all transferred down to before it airs. Mm-hmm. So optical wasn't ever the composer's thing, but Cheryl heard me as just no tape. So for seven years they paid, you know, it was the oh. time of so twenty-four <laughs> track tape was a great bonus. I wasn't yeah. making the highest salary of anyone in my field, but that tape budget helped a lot. You had free tape. Oh wow. wow. That's that's awesome. It was an interesting thing too that you would um like, oh, I have an idea. Do I want to break open a $250 roll of tape for this? Because there was no way to do a mm-hmm. sketch pad, you know, that I knew of then. And I stayed with tape longer than a lot of people because I didn't like digital. Yeah. But when I when I went over, I went over fully. When did that when did that start phasing out into digital? Way into the studio. I remember it was actually it was for Northern. Okay, this is gonna be my last story because I have Yeah. We're keeping you too long. Yeah, I'm sorry. We're we're taking your time. I'm sorry about this. Edit edit the shit out of it with my (laughs) permission. But uh but I think it was for that episode where everyone sings and I just had so many notes. I wanted to bring in somebody else to get the notes with me. So I asked my friend, Mark Goldenberg, uh, who had wrote automatic for the pointer sisters and had played with Jackson Brown and is still a wonderful guitarist and great guy. Nice. And he said, Oh, I'd so like to do it on book today. He said, why don't you call my friend, Andrew gold, who's a legendary 
songwriter uh, who's passed away, but he was Linda Ronstadt's main person. And mm. uh, I, I'd be doing him a disservice to try to name all his credits. And he was great. He came in here and I said, you know what? We're only going to write like two songs. So I have this new thing called Digital Performer. Let's use it, you know? And so um, we get an idea and we decide we're going to put down three guitar parts and a bass part, you know? And it was sort of like, oh, the idea, because someone wanted the, the Northern Exposure musical to sound like the Rolling Stones. Obviously, yeah. that did. It always has that Rolling Stones suggestion. And uh, it only works if you're Scorsese, uh, they, uh, <laughs> who uses the real Rolling Stones all the time. But Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to remember this. We we put down the three tracks. I said, "Oh man, this is great! Thank you so much. I love this. Uh, let, let's just mix this." And suddenly the whole computer froze and wouldn't do anything. And uh, and I'm I'm trying to um, I can't reopen the file. And he's starting to do this riff. He says, uh, and he he says he knows absolutely nothing about it. But like I was trying to open the file by double clicking on it, which is the way I always did. And he says. I think it's better if you go to the menu and, and where it says open, do that. And I said, come on, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and after an hour of this, we're both sweating. Like, he's doing this routine. He's walking around the studio going like, we took two of LA's finest musicians and put them in a room with Mark of the Unicorn's digital performer. Then we watched the fun unravel. And I'm really stressed out. That's what I said to him about something like <laughs> that's not very scientific or something like that pompous thing and i said i went to the bathroom and i come back and he's got it open he had done from the file menu oh (laughs) (laughs) i couldn't have been more wrong and uh and that was what i did with andrew gold not because he wouldn't or i wouldn't it just didn't and he he died early i don't know what happened there but it's very legendary well, if you guys have anything else, uh, uh, you know, ask me. But I, I, I'm supposed to be somewhere else at this yeah, point. Yeah, let's let's get you out of here. I'll just uh, the last thing is just um, obviously Northern Exposure was a huge moment in your life and your career. You wrote music for the entire series, every episode. What was it like leaving Northern Exposure, and what did you do directly after? Well, first of all, I have to agree. It was you know I think of it in, in the most wonderful, fun terms, and everybody who did it, and everyone who got me to the next episode because I, I really felt like an accident and they were patient and brilliant. You know, a lot of the musical suggestions came from the great producers, Andy and Diane, who were the last producers to run it, like knew a tremendous amount about Russian violin soloists <laughs> wow. and Stravinsky and Berg. And, and that would be their taste. And they would ask, and I would try to make something that sounded like that or like Coltrane. I mean, the show had the most ridiculous, you know, can you do something like Coltrane? Well, that's, you know, like a ridiculous <laughs> high mountain climb, but, <laughs> yeah. uh, but you know, when the show ended, it ended, and you know, and it wasn't me leaving it. You know, it, the show ended, and it was very sad. And uh, you know, I, I, I don't think it was as strong in the final season, but that's another story that we can go into some other time. But uh, <laughs> it was a great show, and it, it you know had incredible fans, and really, I didn't work for a very long time, and it was kind of like. People were almost saying, well, we had a show with a moose. We might consider you, you know, and, <laughs> you typecast. And, uh, the next thing I did, it was good time afterwards. One of the producers of the show, or maybe it wasn't. And then there was a long gap afterwards, asked me to do Beverly Hills 90210. Mm-hmm. And he came in with a bunch of people, I believe. Again, I don't know about the politics. Uh, and I, I did two or three episodes of it. Uh, I don't didn't do the theme. And then he was gone from the show. I don't know what happened, but everyone he brought in was gone. And I brought in the third episodes of music on big pieces of tape and came into the studio. You know, I, I had a road rage incident, incident getting to the studio in Hollywood. I, I was like the composer who went to the dub stage all the time. I still am. Mm-hmm. It's not very common. 
And sometimes they don't like the composer there, but I always am very respectful and ask. And I said, you know, you know, I'm not going to make suggestions unless I think I can really help the show. And uh, but I, I find it so valuable to, you know, hear the final result as it goes into the show and hear what how people are reacting it. Because if not, they're getting the music from the music editor, who's great. And they think he wrote the music. You know, and I, I would mm-hmm. witness that if I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. So I, I went in and uh, we're, we're playing the second piece or something like that. And somebody comes, nobody told you. And I said, what? I said, well, uh, you know, your guys are gone and you're gone, you know, and uh, and I brought them donuts and everything. <laughs> so that's how I found out. And, uh, and you know, I mean, now if I had stayed with that show, I would have a totally different life, right? I have yeah. a lot mm-hmm. more money. Um, I would have done that. I would have been doing more of those kind of shows. So you don't know what's going to take you anywhere. You know, again, no regrets at the time. It was quite hard news to hear that I didn't know I'd already been let go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and like, you know, I, I don't remember who brought me on that show, but he was, he was gone too. I don't know if he quit or what happened, but mm-hmm. there were a lot of forces on that show. And amazingly, it lasted for a really long time. And, you know, if you were a person of that age who grew up with that show, it's legendary to you, you know, mm-hmm. so I get it. Uh, anyway, you guys are great. I really enjoyed this. Thank uh, you so much. Wow. Yeah, thank you so this much is, for coming on. Yeah, this is a dream. It's going to be, and if I, if you think I offended someone really badly, take it out. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, use our best judgment. If I offended you guys, take the whole thing out. But, uh, <laughs> no, no, no. no. Th- this I, this I, has I, been I, such I, a a treat. Thank you so much, and thank you for taking that time. And my pleasure. Uh, it was amazing. We will uh, chat with you soon. Ending off. Yeah. All right. Bye. Thanks. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Mac Jackson. Thanks to B-Ball Y'all for the podcast artwork. And thanks to David Schwartz for being our guest. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.